Hi everyone, welcome to this podcast, Software Cross Podcast. I'm your host, João, and today with me I have Nick Kuhn. Nick is a connector of thoughts. Uh, he can help you with strategy, he can help you with your software design, he helps with teams. When he picks up a string, and that is visible and worked out, another thing falls over. He's author, public speaker, and have these deep roots on domain-driven design community. Hi, Nick, and welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. No problem. Pleasure to have you here. And to start today, we have a long heuristic uh, related to the work of designing. And the heuristic is the ability to improve a design occurs primarily at the interfaces. This is also the prime location for screwing it up. How do you feel about this heuristic? Well, I feel in general that's quite, um, maybe even more than a heuristic. Maybe it's uh, um, a truth, a fundamental truth of all projects. This is where things go wrong. So yeah, as a heuristic, it's quite a good one. And um, you work as a consultant, you saw the world what is the biggest screw up at an interface that you can tell us? <laughs> I don't know. I was actually, I was, I was writing a tweet just before this podcast, actually. So when I worked in the UK government about five years ago, I was working with some teams who were part of a digital transformation. The government was bringing some work in-house. And one of the projects we had to build a new system, better user interface, simplify the business processes. And basically the system we were building needed data from the old system. Now the old system was owned by a big IT consultancy. They built it, they owned it, they operated it all outside of the government agency. And so we couldn't build our system without the data. So, you know, we built, we put our architecture together. We identified the dependency on the external consultancy and we proposed if they can just give us a, an overnight data export, we can, you know, we can import that into our system. And yeah, we, we can rebuild our database once a day from that export. The solution they came back with is we can give you a quote to do the work of building this import process. Um, but it's going to cost you £10,000. £10,000 just to put a quote together to tell you how much it will cost to build it. <laughs> and so I've seen this a lot in governments, actually, and there's a big scandal in the news today about the UK test and trace. They, they lost like 10,000 records of people testing positive for COVID or something because they ran over the limits of an Excel spreadsheet. And so I, I suggested based on my experience as probably some person stuck in the middle of all of these silo systems, trying to get all of the data in one place and they were hacking it into an Excel spreadsheet. So I would say usually around those interfaces when it's different, there's an organizational boundary, not even inside your company, but between you and an external supplier. And when your core domain, when your key business initiatives are blocked or 
they're outsourced, critical parts of your system are outsourced to those suppliers and that's stopping you moving quickly, you have to start building these hacks. Yeah, it's, um, it's a nice advice, thanks. And based also your, in your experience. And before we deep dive into individuals and teams, um, you gave an example about managing dependencies at the Nigus level organization. Do you believe that managers and leaders need to have different skills to manage these dependencies or the decisions? Well, I think um, leadership does require different skills. I think the topic of managing dependencies is very interesting because if, if we adopt the mindset of managing dependencies, that can lead to more dependencies, which are actually harder to manage. So I, I, I worked with one company, they went down the approach of safe scaled agile framework, and they leveraged high levels of coordination. So they, they broke up the work and they assigned the work to multiple bits of team to multiple teams and, you know, built like a Gantt chart of how all of these teams would build their pieces and it would all come together at the end of the three months and it will go onto the release train. Now what happened is they had each of these different bits of work was touching on different bits of the architecture or the similar bits of the architecture. And I remember one example where <laughs> it was this new feature and it was a new UI and it had some backend logic and there were three teams involved. And I ended up thinking, how do you end up in a situation like this where a simple application is split up among three teams and those three teams are different vendors? So the company is doing safe and they manage vendors and they assign work to vendors. <laughs> and you, know, you have to agree on the interfaces, who's building what, integrating it, testing it, and then timelines, what if one company's late delivering, puts the whole project back. And for the same company, there was another situation where we were told to build the solution in one way. And a couple of us went back and said, this architecture doesn't really make sense. It's a bit overcomplicated. We said, it, it makes sense if we build all of it together because the front and the back are coupled, how we import the data and store it and search it, it's all coupled together. And they went, no, 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 look, you build the, the API. This other team will build the other API. And when you finished your work, you'll just connect it to their API. It's very, very interesting uh, examples. Uh, and you use a keyword there, coordination, right? Yeah. And there are, I actually last Friday was discussing this with a colleague and these ideas pop up. We have coordination, collaboration, cooperation. And what I also observe is that companies have a hard time to move a cooperation uh, mindset with collaboration at heart. Let's say they like that. That can lead to these massive failures at the interfaces. Um, yeah. So in the example I was just talking about, there was actually a failure too. So we delivered our, our piece of the solution and we wanted to start on the next piece. And then we were told, actually, you can't start on that piece because the other team hasn't finished their work in time. So, so we've got like two months of work, which is like put on the shelf. Can you start working on something else or waiting for that other team to finish their bit? 
So, so we're talking a lot of wasted time and effort here and an overcomplicated architecture. So are we being cursed about our technology or technical capabilities because we are so good to split things up, we end up having coupling between the teams. I think that was Kent Beck that was he talked about that on DDD Europe, but also now he has a tweet about that on Saturday or something. Yeah, I think that's the problem here. We are splitting the system up in a way where we're creating lots of dependencies between the teams. Now, dependencies between teams isn't a good or bad thing. You have to assess what's the cost of that dependency. So if you've got three teams from three or four different vendors and those teams don't know each other that well and everything goes via some project manager or solution architect in the middle, that's a very high cost of collaborating and so a very high cost of coordinating. If those teams were co-located sitting in the same office or even if we're working remotely and those teams have access to each other via Slack, and maybe even people rotating between the teams, that's a very different picture. That's reducing the cost of collaboration and reducing the cost of coordination. And in fact, once we get to that level where the teams are working closely, we might not need coordination. The teams might be able to organize themselves effectively. In spirit of agile, I will say. And, and, and taking this wish to the future, right? We both know that not all the industry works like this or things like this. That is a role for the new type of architect. What is your opinion about that? Well, I, I don't know if, if the, the title's architect, if that conflates things with what's already out there. But I think someone who, well, obviously my bio is connecting the dots. I think more people who are connecting the dots is a good thing. If, if it's not possible for the teams to connect the dots themselves, then someone who takes the mindset of, I'm here to help the teams connect the dots and to make the bigger picture visible sometimes when it gets lost, I think that can be an important role. And uh, you mentioned an important thing, see the big, bigger picture. How can we help the teams at this starting point to see the bigger picture? Well, I guess seeing the bigger picture is about making sure the information is firstly available. So our management communicating the goals, our management communicating effectively what the priorities are, or are they just dishing out work to each team saying, you, you go build this, that team go build that. So that, that's the first one. Teams need to know the intent of the organization and not just be given orders. And then for other scenarios, it's about visualizing what's there, what the future looks like, having a shared model of what, we're, what we have now and what we're building towards in the future. Because if, we're all, if we all have the wrong picture in our heads, then we're all going in different directions thinking we're working together. So that's where techniques like event storming are useful, where we can map out business processes. We can see where we disagree on things. We can uncover complexity. We can identify in these processes, where's the value? What do we have to do special as a company? And at, at the same time, 
we're also dis doing discovery. We're discovering opportunities. We're discovering complexity. We're finding new things that weren't there before. So the teams themselves are not just being told, here's the goal. The teams themselves are actually going back to the business and saying, we found a different goal. What do you think about this? It's, it's very interesting. Um, and um, my follow-up question will be, in your work and facilitating these sessions and helping these companies, did you saw this haha moment where the culture in the company changed from directive to supportative? Hmm. I don't I don't know if I've seen it happening in workshops. My experience has been more hiring the right engineering management, VPs of engineering, CTOs who get it. Like they've worked in good companies and they bring those ideas to new companies. Or They've, they've been to a conference, they've seen a different way of working and they're open to exploring new ways of working. So I think, yeah, in my experience, it's normally the leadership that has a key role here. Very interesting, very interesting. And I think that that goes around the team. We have guests in the past in this podcast saying the same. Uh, also in going into inclusion, diversity and psychology safety as key ingredients for a company to move forward. And speaking also these themes, how can this help uncovering or simplifying complexity? So first of all, make the complexity visible. So we all agree it's there. If I don't know there's complexity, I can't make it simpler. And then secondly, it's about making the cost of that complexity clear. So if we have a very complex code base, we might have more people working on it to, to be able to evolve, add the features we're looking for in the timeframe we're looking for, or features just take slower to add in that code base. So if we can make those costs clear, we can then propose the solution, which is let's spend six months fixing up this code base, and then we can put people take we can reduce the number of people working on that, which isn't critical to our business objectives. And we can have more people working on our core domains, which, which do contribute to our business success in a bigger way. So make it visible, make the costs clear, propose solutions for reducing the costs in some way. Or maybe you can't reduce it and it's just about make it clear, make the costs clear, and when we're planning things, keep this in mind. Like if we, if we have a legacy code base and there are multiple teams still working in it, we can't give those teams independent roadmaps and expect them all to do things on their own because they've got coupling at a technical level. It's complex, it's there. If, if teams try and build three different features in the part of the code base that they're all coupled to, they might get in each other's way. They might slow each other down, for example. Yeah, indeed. Um, we have several cases like this where the projects just get delayed. Um, and you, well, you are well known to, to evangelize this way of working. Um, do you see more and more companies adopting this way of thinking or these, using these patterns to make their decisions? Or not yet? We are not there yet. Well, I guess... Um, 
my my experience is biased because I'm operating in this space. I believe techniques like event storming, domain modeling, collaborative ways work. And so the people who come to me or who I work with have seen that I'm interested in this topic and I have some experience. So yeah, I, I'm biased really. I mostly see companies working that way or who want to try working that way. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, it's positive. We also saw in the um, big tech companies like Netflix and Uber, now they are applying and discovering domain-driven design for the first time, namely in a different way, but same intent, organized around domain. So uh, we could say that industry is moving there, um, which is very interesting. And now looking a bit to the teams, and because this is designing at the interfaces, yeah. Um, how the teams can uh, get to a better design if they move to this collaboration or cooperation mode rather than coordination? Well, I think it's very easy to get into the arm wavy collaboration. Collaboration is great, but you know you have to do it in a certain way. It has to be effective forms of collaboration so and then there are a number of factors that can make it fail like if you don't have the right culture in the organization like if you have a collaboration session and you're expected to produce some big amazing insights out of that session there's a lot of pressure there already and that, that can stifle creativity and freedom so that that would be a, a blocker like, oh, forced, forced collaboration. Um, and then one of the problems I see is that different people in the company are more open to these ideas than others. Like some people just don't want to get involved by post-it notes on a wall. It's below them. It's, it's why should I do that? I'm just a coder. And I, I, I encounter this a lot. And it can be from younger people or older people. I don't really see a pattern in in, in the kind of people who have those views, it just seems to be very common that some people don't want to don't want to mess around with post-its. And I guess that, that comes down to the culture of your company. What what are your values? What's essential to the way your team works and where can you be flexible? Yeah, indeed I see that um, we talk about the culture, right? And this is the people that you hire, you have a recruitment process, you can do some cloning pattern. Just bring in because when we were a startup, individual contributors just work. But today we are a medium sized enterprise and that doesn't work. And also, you said that um, we need to look, collaboration is a big word, and we need to look for effective ways of collaborating. This is a podcast about heuristics and patterns. So the question is what are your heuristics for a effective collaboration? So that's a good, I've not really thought of that question before. So I'm going to have a quick think now, but I guess, I guess common heuristics would apply here. So if you're not used to collaborating, start small. If you, if you want to try something like event storming, try in a small group of people who are open to new ideas. And then you can build a group of people in your company who are in, interested in this way of working and you start to build momentum. If you go straight in with a big, big event storming session for your first time, you invite lots of important people 
and you hype up this event storming thing as like the, the silver bullet is just going to, we're going to do loads of collaboration and then we're going to be having the perfect architecture and domain boundaries. That can go very wrong. So start small, find a group of people who would be interested in collaborating and give yourself time to try different techniques. Expect that things don't always work. And I guess a good heuristic is expect discovery to happen after discovery. So what I mean here is I'm a very type two thinking kind of person, right? I can read something or listen to something or do a discovery session. And I don't really take away anything from it. Nothing jumps out at me, but then my brain starts spinning up some threads in the background. Like all this stuff I just did, all these things we just talked about, my brain starts processing it. And then suddenly it comes into my foreground thread, my main thread. And it's like, Hey, what did you think about those things? Connecting those two dots, that person had that problem. And that person had that problem. What if, what if you tried getting those two people together and solving one problem might solve both problems. So yeah, I would say discovery is, it's not always when you're doing discovery that discovery happens. It's very often happening in the back of your mind when you're thinking about other things. I, I really like, and I quote this discovery after discovery. Um, I also cool, we could talk about evolution, right? How a thought process evolves. You are not the same person that wrote the first book a few years back. And, um, and this is a very important point because I, I had this question to put to you for a long time. We, we do event storming, we do context map, we use your bounded context canvas, or uh, we check in which part of the evolution our uh, domains are. But lots of people take this as a snapshot in time and now we are good. How can we as community, helping them about this perception of evolution that the boundaries might change? How can we do that? Um, well, I guess what's, what's out there now that works, that's useful. Let's try giving existing materials. I think Teams Apologies is the book that came out recently. That's a good place to start reading. It's only 200 pages. And then I think we can articulate why boundaries need to change over time. So organizations grow, for example. So as, as we want to do more work in the same part of a system, we can't just keep growing teams indefinitely. So we get to a limit. I think Teams Apologies talks about seven plus or minus two. Like, would you want a team of 100 developers? Probably not. That's probably way too big. 50, that's probably still a huge team. 20, that's, that's still a big team. So once we get to the point where we want more than 10 people in a team, then we have to start thinking about splitting the team. But the problem is, if we split the team, but we don't split the architecture, we'll have two teams who both own or both working in the same part of the system. And that's when we get back to those coordination problems. And we, have, we can't have two independent backlogs because the work is coupled. So the architecture needs to split for organizational reasons. Sometimes we just get the boundaries wrong. Sometimes we start building the system and as we add more features, we get 
lots of coupling between two microservices or multiple microservices. And that means more team coordination. And so, like I was saying before, with the example of safe, <laughs> that was a very extreme example of every feature requiring multiple teams and they were external vendors who didn't collaborate much. So we have to be keeping an eye on dependencies and thinking, is our architecture the problem here? Are we making things worse? Can we reshape the boundaries to reduce the coupling in the teams? We then have business reasons for things changing. So I don't want to try and go into wardly mapping here, but we know that every concept starts out as a new and exciting idea and it finishes as a boring idea and there's something new that comes along. Like think about every product you use. The feature it adds new features over time and the old features become less exciting. And so this is going to happen in our domains too. New parts of the domain will be more exciting. The business will want to invest in those parts of the domain. And that might mean extracting those parts from other systems so they can be developed independently. So we've got business reasons. We've got organizational reasons. Uh, we've got technical reasons why boundaries need to change. So I guess making, making these reasons clear. Will help everyone in the future indeed. And uh, what I also see and was coming in my head, we have a big turnover in the IT industry. We are very fortunate to, to move between jobs. Um, and that perhaps is one of the reasons why we don't see this evolution. And this is not sexy anymore. We just move to the next gig. Um, and I will like the, 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 the people to start to acquiring, not to stay more time at their jobs. This is a personal decision, but acquiring these tools to help companies to move forward. What do you wish for the future? What do I wish for the future? So I just want to quickly say one thing and then I'll answer your question. So, well, this is actually, but I've got two parts to answer. The first thing is more case studies of where systems evolved over time and the boundaries changed over time. So in the past year, I saw two exceptional examples of this. Uh, one was by Aura Agosi. She spoke at Domain Driven Design Europe about how her company acquired another company who were working in a similar space. And they went through three or four different iterations of the architectural boundaries and teams. Because when you're merging two companies, you're merging two architectures and two organizational structures. And they looked at different ways of keeping things apart, merging them, splitting them back out. It's a very interesting case study there, which focused a lot on the organizational aspects. Another one I saw also at the Manager of Design Europe was Vladik Kononov. He's, he talks about um, evolution in large-scale marketing systems also. And I think his story goes over the space of, I'm not sure how long, but it's, it's a few years, like three to five years, for example. So how the boundaries changed, how their vision of the core domain changed, how the architecture changed. So I think my first part of the wish is more case studies for sure. And my second wish is for self-documenting architecture. So one of the reasons that um, so when we talk about high turnover, there's also a loss of knowledge there. People don't stay long enough and the knowledge leaves the company. 
So we have lots of people in the company who understand different parts of the architecture. Sometimes you get to one company and there's like one person who knows bits of the architecture. Actually, a few times in the past year, I went to work with a company that let's model your domain, let's map it out. And it's like, oh, nobody who wrote that code works here anymore. Literally no one in the company knows how that works. You just have to look at the code base and figure it out yourself. So my wish is for a self-documenting architecture, which is I can, I can open any code base or any system and the system can visualize itself. It can show me what's the interface of this component, what messages does it send to other parts of the architecture. It can also tell me why did we choose these boundaries? Like what was the history of decision-making that went into that, like an architecture decision record, but maybe even more powerful. And so with this approach, we're not just taking requirements and trying to fit them into a system we began working on six months ago. We can see the full history of the system's changes, why those changes were made, and we can visualize the system. Maybe I can go to a code base and say, map out this code base as an event storm, as a timeline. Or I can go to the architecture and say, map out the whole business process, which goes through different microservices, show me the whole picture. So when I have all of this information about the big picture and why those changes were made, suddenly I'm going to be less averse to changing boundaries. It's going to be just looking at information, looking at choices that were made. And maybe even the systems at that point, because this is all inside the system, the system can even tell us, like these boundaries were made five years ago for these reasons. We've seen how the business model has changed, how the organization has changed. You might want to re-architect around this part of the system. So that's my wish there. And that goes back to what we talked about earlier. If I can visualize it and I can see what's there, I can start to assess the cost and think of better choices. If you think about code bases and the way they work now in systems, we don't even know how they work. Like you have to work at a company for six months to really start to get a basic understanding of how things work. But if you think about it, a software system isn't just text files. It's a database. Your, your software is your domain model written as code. It's your architecture as code. So why can't I get this information out easily? It's indeed a good wish and a good question. Um, actually, maps back. Um, I was in a conference a few weeks ago and uh, someone was talking about the new interactive IDEs that have collect collects more information is not just uh, the text. Let's see if the industry goes there uh, because then we have more powerful tools to reason about the boundaries rather than reasoning about other details that are important, but sometimes based on assumptions. And, and with this, we are close uh, close to the end of this interview, the half an hour mark, our uh, golden rule. And um, we discuss a lot and we cover lots of, of, of ground and perhaps we could have more two hours covering more ground. Uh, but can you give some resources for people to continue their journey, books or podcasts or blogs or videos that relates to, to discussion today? Yeah, so the first thing I would say is uh, start following Ruth Malan on Twitter and just listen to everything she says. 
like uh, we we made this uh, rule a few weeks ago, which is basically anything you learn about architecture. Ruth Malan was talking about it in the 1990s, and so far it's been successful in 100% of the scenarios we applied it to. So follow her, follow her works, read about what she was doing all the way from the 90s until today. I think Team Topologies, as I mentioned earlier, is a good book in this area. Came out yeah last year, 2019. Um, so Matthew Skelton and Manuel Pay, they worked with lots of companies. They looked at the research and the science behind organization design, and they, they put this together into a model and a set of heuristics and guidelines and principles, which I think is useful. So I guess those are the two, two starting points. And then I think really it's just, just take it upon yourself to look at the companies you're working in, notice, look at the boundaries, look where where things get handed over between different teams, notice problems on an organizational level, on a technical level. Do we have to build robust interfaces? Because where my system interacts with another system, if something goes wrong, we need to identify the problem or we don't want to be blamed if it goes wrong for technical reasons. And I guess looking from the business perspective at the boundaries too, like what do these two boundaries represent from a business perspective and start, start playing around with Wardley mapping. So for Wardley mapping, there's a free ebook you can read. Uh, you can download it from LeanPub for free. Simon Wardley also published it on Medium. Okay. Thanks for these resources. I will make sure that they are on the description of, uh, of the podcast so people can continue. Also, you can contact Nick uh, on Twitter. He's very alive over there, so you can talk about that. You can ask him about vacations uh, this summer. And also he's happy to talk about trains. I don't know if he owns a collection like Sheldon in Big Bang Theory, but he also loves trains. Uh, you can reach him out. Uh, thanks to be here. This is really insightful, and I can see why people tell that you are a cross between Eminem and Martin Fowler. So thanks for your time. Thank you for inviting me. It's been fun. Yep. You can follow us on Twitter at scraftspodcast. Visit our website, softwarecraftspodcast.com. Follow our page on LinkedIn, Software Crafts Podcast. See you next week and hope that you enjoy it. Mm-hmm.